It's Wednesday, June 27th, and this is The Daily Dive. Big news out of the Supreme Court as they upheld President Trump's most recent iteration of his travel ban. The justices, in a 5-4 decision, said that despite language that the president has used in the past to describe the ban, it still falls within his power to control immigration policy. Sam Baker, reporter for Axios, will join us to discuss the reasons behind the ruling and the larger picture for the Supreme Court, with another rumored retirement that may be coming soon. Next, three years into its campaign to add diversity to the ranks of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, we get a record number of invitees at over 900. There are more women and minorities in the Academy's membership, but what could it mean for the Oscars? Glenn Whip, film and TV reporter for the LA Times, joins us to discuss the impact on the next big awards. Finally, Jeanette Setembre, reporter for Moneyish, joins us to talk about people ditching social media. Privacy concerns have prompted 40% of people to scrap at least one social media account. People are not liking what companies are doing with their data, and it's making them rethink if social media is worth their time. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is a great victory for our Constitution. We have to be tough, and we have to be safe, and we have to be secure. At a minimum, we have to make sure that we vet people coming into the country. Joining us now is Sam Baker, reporter for Axios. The Supreme Court upheld President Trump's most recent iteration of the travel ban in a 5-4 decision. Let's start off real quick. What is in the travel ban? So the travel ban uh, restricts entry into the United States. Well, the most recent version started at eight. It's now down to seven countries, uh, five of which are majority Muslim countries. You may remember, of course, this policy has been through several iterations. The first version came out just a couple days into the Trump administration. That's what sparked protests at airports across the country. There was mass confusion. It's since sort of been refined and put back through what you could really call a more normal policymaking process through the executive branch, simultaneously working its way through the courts and The most recent, most refined version is the one that the Supreme Court was dealing with yesterday. So the Supreme Court ruled pretty much on party lines, five to four. How did the justices rule on this? So it's really interesting there. There were several opinions. As you said, it was five, four, five conservatives against the four liberals. Several of the justices wrote on their own to sort of share their own thinking. You saw the liberal justices who were on the losing side say, look, you've got to consider all these things that Trump said when he was a candidate or when he first announced this policy, he called it a Muslim ban. It's obviously a Muslim ban, and that should sort of be the end of the equation. Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion, said, look, I see all those statements. I'm aware of all those statements, but this is, we got to treat this policy just sort of like it's any other policy. It's been through a process. It has its own stated justifications, and we should defer to those things unless it's just impossible to. And in this case, it's not impossible to. He said that taking his statements as neutral, basically taking away those statements, the policy, the executive order itself stands to legal muster. And we have to recognize the president's authority in this immigration realm. Exactly. And the president does have any any president. The presidency has considerable flexibility over immigration and particularly over these temporary, uh, you know, who can come in or come out or what process they have to go through for a defined period of time, a limited period of time. President Obama exercised that discretion some, uh, and that is what the Trump administration has settled on saying they are doing now. That's what the chief justice said. He said, look, 
The law gives the executive this power. They're using it in a way that is very similar in the end to the way other presidents have used it. Uh, And he just sort of said, we can't look past that and decide based on these other statements that the president made while he was campaigning. Justice Sonia Sotomayor was the most outspoken in her dissent. What did she have to say in in this ruling? She really was. And she read yesterday uh, from the bench for a really long time. I, I was there and felt like maybe 10 or 15 minutes, which is unusual. A really long statement, a very impassioned statement. And her written dissent is also very impassioned. She accuses the majority of throwing the First Amendment to the side, of ignoring its promise of the free exercise of religion, uh, of just sort of falling for a pretext that there's any sort of national security reason to to do this, which is what the Trump administration has claimed. So it's a really stinging dissent. Yeah, she couldn't separate his past language at all in this. And like you said, she she saw that as the smoking gun for it. A lot is being made about Justice Kennedy. He is the swing vote usually, but there's how did he rule in this? But there's also rumors that he might be retiring at the end of this term, which is this week. Uh, that's right. It's today, actually. Uh, this morning, the court will hand down its final decisions. Uh, they can do whatever they want. If he's going to retire, he can retire any time. But uh, the the thinking is that if he's going to make that announcement, it would probably probably be today. Uh, and people are reading a lot into uh, his decision yesterday. He did side with Roberts, he voted with Roberts and, and said, yes, obviously, federal law allows this travel ban to to happen, allows Trump to do it. But he wrote this really short two-page opinion. And he said, even though I agree with that, government officials need to remember that they have a duty to the Constitution just because something can't be reviewed by the courts or isn't really the court's business doesn't mean that you should you know, disregard fundamental principles on which the country is is founded. It didn't say Trump's name, but it sure read like an implied critique of a lot of the statements that Trump has made. And so people are reading into that. Does that some people think it sounds like he's kind of giving up and he's ready to to sort of uh, go out on a high note, I guess, or or, or a, uh, a valedictory note. Uh, and some people see it as you know, this doesn't sound like a guy who's there to hang up his spurs. I think people are just sort of reading into it, uh, whatever they're already sort of inclined to believe. Right. What's the larger picture um, for the Supreme Court and conservatives? They kind of been on a waiting streak lately with a, a couple of other uh, rulings in their favor. That's right. Uh, the Trump administration won the, tra- the travel ban case. There was another case that came down yesterday. Uh, not quite as big a deal, but uh, about some regulations of anti-abortion Uh, Pregnancy centers in California, conservatives won that case. Uh, There's a big unions case coming today that we anticipate conservatives are going to win. Uh, Very narrow decision, but technically uh, the baker who didn't want to bake a cake for the same-sex couple, he also won. You know, it's just a reminder this is a conservative court. It is a 5-4 conservative majority. People sort of forget sometimes that really outside some of the most hot-button social issues, Anthony Kennedy is still a conservative justice. He's not the most conservative justice, but he does align with that, uh, that side of the court more often than not. Uh, and obviously the fact that President Trump was able to fill Antonin Scalia's seat that Gorsuch is on the court instead of Merrick Garland uh, makes a huge difference as well. 
So um, finally, what's next for the court? The session ends today. Um, uh, when do they start again? And uh, do we know of any big cases that uh, are on the docket currently? Uh, that's right. They finish up today. They'll release their last opinions. Uh, they, there are not a ton of high-profile cases on the docket yet. They've been sort of slow taking cases for the next term, but they have plenty of time to catch up on that. Uh, and the next term will begin uh, in October. So they do have time to, to fill out the docket a little bit. All right. Sam Baker, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Man, I, I counted at least 15 black people on that montage. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, I'm here at the Academy Awards. Uh, otherwise known as the uh, White People's Choice Awards. Uh, you realize, if they nominated host, I wouldn't even get this job. Joining us now is Glenn Whip. He covers film and television for the Los Angeles Times. So we're three years into this big diversity push by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. They have added nearly 2,400 members and this year, the new class has over 900 invitees. Who are they inviting, and, and what are the numbers looking like now? Three years now, you have about 25% more Academy members than you did you know, in 2015. So it's a significantly different Academy now. Who are they inviting? People they've overlooked in the past. A lot of international film people have been invited. There have been a lot of actors who kind of might be more known for television than film, but the lines between those two mediums kind of blurred in the last few years. So you have people going back and forth a lot. And a lot of women, a lot of people of color, the, the idea was to double the amount of women and double the number of minorities in over five years. And they're three years into this, and they're doing well with people of color. They have a ways to go with women. The goal of this was to uh, add diversity and broaden the spectrum of its members. You know, it's very commendable. But on the awards side, what is the goal? Is it to, I mean, you still want the best overall movie to win. Are we just trying to broaden the spectrum of what is considered Oscar-worthy performances? Well, the goal from the Academy's standpoint has always been to make the membership more reflective of our world. So how that plays out in terms of the Oscars and what these new members are going to vote for, that's speculation. We don't, we don't really know. And, and two years into it, the Academy selections really haven't been that different from other groups like the Screen Actors Guild or Producers Guild. I mean, now they added another 928 members. How is that going to affect it? You can't make any um, generalizations about how these people are going to vote. But I would say that a lot of global members now. So you're going to be, you know, looking at people who have a very different perspective on film. And it'll be interesting to see this year um, yeah, how think... these 2,400 members that they've added over the past three years, if there's any kind of differences in what kind of movies and performances are nominated. Yeah, about half of the new invitees from this year are international industry right. professionals. So it is it does broaden it a lot. It is interesting also because Oscars are basically at the very end. Uh, Golden Globe, Screen Actors Guild, all these other award shows kind of go first. So they're already getting first crack at and, and kind of setting the stage of what are the top movies of the year. How do people nominate movies? Do these uh, invitees, do they all 
fill out a like a ballot like this was my favorite movie of the year or something sure. or is that is that basically how it works the academy has 24 branches so you vote for the nominees within your branch so actors vote for actors directors vote for directors etc and then everybody votes for best picture and the best picture balloting you list your five favorite movies and you rank them in the order that you like them one of the things i th- i thought was interesting reading through your article was that there was a lot of Academy members that were not necessarily happy with the big diversity push saying you're just adding a bunch of numbers of people kind of diluting what this is all about. I don't know that there are a lot, but there are there are some Academy members and they tend to be older. And what's interesting is that the, <laughs> the people who complain about diluting the prestige of the Academy by inviting so many new members, they tend to be like, they have pretty thin resumes. I've never heard anyone like Steven Spielberg or, you know, Tom Hanks complain about this Academy push for more inclusive membership. It's always the people who are like have very thin resumes and you kind of wonder, how did they get in? Yeah, Academy? what are you, you know, doing it's, here? It's kind of funny that the complainers tend to be the ones that maybe are on shaky ground themselves. But the Academy has always had has had a long history of inviting people with primarily television careers or inviting people who were friends of friends of friends. So, you know, to hear the complaints, it's kind of kind of ridiculous. Yeah. I, I think there's very little downside to inviting people who have different perspectives on film and different experiences in life. Yeah, and even with regards to, uh, you know, bringing in TV people versus all movie people, I mean, the lines have been blurred a lot with things like Netflix and people are crossing over all over the place. You can be a movie star and then star in a very short run Netflix series or something like that. So the media landscape is meshing all together anyways. We'll see how uh, the new inductees will uh, change the landscape. Uh, Thank you very much. Glenn Whip covering film and television for the LA Times. Thank you. So this whole controversy actually led to the campaign hashtag delete Facebook movement, right? So all these users were vowing to permanently delete their accounts from the world's largest social media network. Joining us now is Jeanette Setembre, reporter for Moneyish. So it looks like people are doing a little bit of house cleaning. Recent studies said that about 40% of people have scrapped at least one of their social media accounts due to privacy concerns and a bunch of other stuff. Who did the study? What's going on? 40% of people have deleted their social media accounts. And this is based off a study done by the public relations agency Edelman. The firm pulled 9,000 people in Canada, China, France, Germany, Brazil, across the globe, and they found that there is collective outrage over repeated online privacy violations. This is all stemming from the Cambridge Analytica data leak. And it's really prompting people to delete at least, like you mentioned, one um, of their social media accounts because there's mistrust. It says that 62% wanted more regulation on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And directly relating to the Cambridge Analytica stuff, people aren't really 100% sure what everybody's doing with their data. I know when Mark Zuckerberg was sitting through all of the uh, testimony before the Senate, he said we'd be willing to go under some regulation, but we want to hand in, in writing a bunch of it. 
we saw that grueling two-day congressional testimony with Mark Zuckerberg fielding questions about the data collection and censorship, and people are still hesitant to have their information and their data shared after the breach that has been known about by Facebook since 2015. So this whole controversy actually led to the campaign hashtag delete Facebook movement, right? So all these users were vowing to permanently delete their accounts from the world's largest social media network. And as a result of this viral campaign, 7% of Americans deleted the Facebook app from their phone over privacy concerns, and 9% said that they deleted their account altogether. We're seeing more and more people are deleting the app and the site in general. And it's not just privacy concerns. There's a lot of distrust in the content People aren't necessarily sure what's true. There was, you know, the whole fake news thing, a bunch of the Russian trolling interference with the election stuff. And people just don't know what's true, what's fake. They don't know how to decipher it sometimes. There's a lot of concern with being probed by fake news. A fake news that was influenced from the 2016 presidential election, like you mentioned with the Russian trollings. And 48% surveyed said that it's the brand's fault if it's advertising appears next to violent or hateful content. So again, we're seeing a lot of this backlash fall on some of the advertisers as well. One thing that was kind of interesting was the confidence level that people had about these companies protecting their data. What were the statistics there? Another survey that was put out revealed that our society's collective distrust regarding privacy online in general is really low. So just 9% of social media users were very confident that companies would protect their data. And about half of users were not at all or not too confident that their data was even safe in the hands of these networks. So, I mean, that's pretty alarming. Yeah, that's a tough situation because the privacy agreements a lot of times are really long. There's a lot of legalese in there sometimes, and people just don't read them. I know I, on many occasions, have signed up for a new social media thing and (laughs) haven't read it at all, basically. Absolutely. And this is just a sign of the times, especially for young people like millennials who are wanting to connect with friends and wanting to just cut to the chase and not read all these terms and agreements. But as we are seeing this data breach more and more, People are starting to become aware and they're starting to read line for line what these privacy regulations are. Was there any sense of how people felt about the ads targeted towards them, even though as people were dropping out and dropping these social medias, Facebook still was making tons of money off of ads. And, you know, this has it relates to the Cambridge Analytica thing. That's how people are knowing who to target and whatnot. Um, Is there any sense of how people feel about being targeted so much by these ads? They definitely think that it's a violation of their own personal privacy and creepy to kind of see these ads target them and based on their personal preference or buyer history and things like that. And I think that's another reason why they're trying to build their own privacy from these sites. Did you delete any of your social media? I did delete Snapchat just because I thought it was an unnecessary social media account, but it definitely, it definitely made me question how important being on this network is and how much of my information could be compromised. Immediately after the Cambridge thing happened, I went on Facebook and saw all the other apps granted access to your data. So I scrubbed all those and uh, I haven't deleted any of my socials yet, but definitely have used them a little bit less. (laughs) It looks like a lot of people are on the same page with that one. Jeanette Setembre, reporter for Moneyish, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.